From South Carolina Public Radio, this is the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on January 2nd, 2024 from South Carolina Public Radio Studios here in Columbia. Happy New Year, folks, and welcome to our ninth episode looking at all things related to the upcoming 2024 Republican presidential primary. We are wrapping up the history portion of this special series by looking at the 2016 race, the last recent competitive Republican presidential primary. We look at how real estate billionaire and reality TV star Donald Trump took the race and world by storm. Our previous episodes have looked at the people and places that make up the Republican Party here, why the state is so important in the process, and how to campaign in the Palmetto State, as well as the unsavory parts of the campaigning process. You can find all those episodes on SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. And the lead loves hearing from everyone. That's why we have a voicemail box set up so you can share your thoughts, hot takes, and questions at 803-563-7169. Leave us your name, where you're calling from, and what you want us to talk about in the wind down, which will not be a part of this episode, but that will be back this weekend. So stay tuned, folks. Give us a shout, 803-563-7169. As I said at the top, this is our last history lesson episode. Okay, calm down, guys. And now that we are in the new year, our dedicated 2024 pods are drawing nigh. Come on, guys, let's go! In between our real-time coverage from the campaign trail in Iowa and New Hampshire and right here in South Carolina, we'll bring you our remaining episodes that look at how to vote in the state, who the remaining candidates on the ballot are, and what they stand for, and also a bit of a Reader's Digest episode of our series so you have everything you need fresh in your mind, ready to dispense knowledge to a friend and foe alike about why South Carolina is such an important state when it comes to the presidential nominating process. And with that prologue out of the way, let's get down to business. That's right, that was the OJ's classic hit, For the Love of Money, and the opening theme of the NBC reality TV show, The Apprentice, which real estate mogul Donald Trump hosted and co-produced for 14 seasons starting back in 2004. You gotta love TV math here, folks. My co-pilot on this 2024 journey is none other than South Carolina Public Radio's Mayon Schechter. Mayon, hello. Were you a big Apprentice fan? Perhaps a celebrity apprentice? I kind of feel like a terrible millennial because I have actually never seen a full Apprentice episode. Neither have I. (laughs) (laughs) What I did do was some internet sleuthing to see who appeared in those Celebrity Apprentice shows, which started in the seventh season of The Apprentice, particularly the fifth Celebrity Apprentice season, which aired in 2011, that featured folks like Victoria Gotti, daughter of Gambino crime family boss John Gotti, and others like George Takai, who went on to be and remains a major outspoken critic of Trump's. Mm, Wow, what a good season. Who won that season, do you know? Arsenio Hall and Clay Aiken, remember that name, Mm, came in second. What a blast from the past in 2011 there. But let's keep this 2016 time warp moving. Love or hate Donald Trump, there's no denying that he has been one of the most revolutionary and influential people involved in politics in the modern era. A Republican turned Democrat turned Republican. And episode spoiler, Trump became the 45th president of the United States. But let's give you a little bit of a background on the man and how South Carolina helped get him to the White House. 
Trump is the son of a New York real estate dealer and garnered a reputation as a hard businessman. Trump, who is now 77, is a native New Yorker, has five children from three wives, and he was technically a millionaire by the age of eight. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 1968, and Trump's father named him president of his real estate business in 1971. Now, despite co-writing The Art of the Deal, Trump had multiple failed business ventures over the decades. He's had six business bankruptcies and has been involved in more than 4,000 state and federal legal actions, according to USA Today in 2018. But Trump struck success with licensing the Trump name and co-producing The Apprentice. Controversy has always surrounded the Donald, with a 1970s lawsuit filed against him for housing discrimination. He also notoriously took out newspaper ads calling for the return of the death penalty following the brutal rape of a New York jogger in 1989, blasting the Central Park Five, a group of five black and Latino teens who were wrongfully convicted of the crime and later exonerated. Interesting note, Trump himself has been accused of several sexual assaults and was found liable by a jury in May 2023 for sexually abusing advice columnist E. Jean Carroll in 1996. Of course, his legal issues have only grown and include most recently being part of four indictments and 91 felony criminal charges stemming from election interference in Georgia and federally, as well as allegedly keeping classified documents after leaving office and falsifying business records as part of a hush money scandal involving an adult film actress in New York. His outsized personality and ability to work the media to his advantage came in handy as he approached running for president and during his first successful bid. And Gavin, there's also a bit of a South Carolina connection to Trump because, of course, there's a Mm, South Carolina connection to everything. In 1988, Trump approached the boogeyman himself, Lee Atwater. We talked about him before, Mm -hmm. who was running George H.W. Bush's presidential campaign and asked to be considered for Bush's running mate as vice president. This was during a pretty big peak in Trump's life with big real estate and casino deals going on and his name splashed in papers regularly. Alas, that didn't pan out, as we all know. But funny enough, Trump's Bush connection doesn't end there because Bush's son, Jeb, who served as governor of Florida from 1999 to 2007, was one of the several, and I mean several, folks who threw their hat in the ring for the wide-open 2016 primary, including our very own U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham. More on that shortly. Oh, can't wait for that. We love a South Carolina connection. But after Mitt Romney failed to prevent a second Barack Obama term in 2012, the backlash from Republicans grew stronger. The Tea Party movement that came to life under the Obama years around 2010 and 2011 was also stoked by sharp rhetoric and the conspiracy theorist birther movement which was based on wildly inaccurate and downright racist claims that Obama was not a natural-born U.S. citizen as required by the Constitution in order to hold office because he had not released his full birth certificate, which some think was disqualifying. It's not because he was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, an American state, on August 4, 1961, not in Kenya, the country of his father. That movement was a preview of Trump's 2016 presidential bid, tapping into and creating a fervor in a way not seen on the Republican side since Reagan, and a response to a similarly powerful movement that propelled Obama from somewhat obscurity as a former Illinois state lawmaker and freshman senator into the highest office in the world. You're really reminding me of our last 2024 pod on the 2012 race and that far-right movement that was kind of incubating during that time to which Trump wound up capitalizing on. College of Charleston Dean of Humanities and Social Sciences Gibbs Knotts co-wrote the book on South Carolina primaries with Jordan Ragusa, and Gibbs recounts the scene at the time as the 2016 battle for the White House took shape. 
I'll admit, I was sitting here in South Carolina. I was working at the College of Charleston. And I was like, I just don't see Trump winning in South Carolina. This is a guy who's been married three times. He's not a Southern candidate. Uh, how are evangelical voters going to get behind this guy? I kind of thought Jeb Bush, in a lot of ways, was the perfect candidate, uh, being you know with his family name, governor of a Southern state. But I, I do think that 2012 support for Gingrich was a, a forecast of things to come. Gibbs and many, many others were incorrect about Trump because the movement was so hard to believe at the time. How could someone say and do such eyebrow-raising things and actually win? That was the absolute game changer Trump was in the 2016 race. So you had Trump get into the race on June 16th, 2015, coming down his gold escalator in New York's Trump Tower to Neil Young's Keep on Rocking in the Free World in an iconic made-for-TV moment that came to be emblematic of his campaign, along with his Make America Great Again slogan. There were dozens of folks there, some of them paid, as it was later discovered, for his fiery 45-minute-long speech, which at rallies goes even longer and is a staple of Trump events. It drew harsh criticism for its rhetoric and bombast, and specifically at Mexican immigrants. That led the political chattering class to instantly rule Trump out as nothing more than a sideshow. Seriously, listen to this news package from Inside Edition. Yes, the wildly credible Inside Edition, the day after. Take a listen. Trump is enraging many people with his remarks about Mexican immigrants. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some... I assume are good people. How can you succeed when you say things like that? Well, you can't, again, Gail, if the question is how can you become president, you can't by saying things like that. On Fox and Friends today, Trump spoke about the controversy. Are you concerned about alienating the Hispanic vote by saying that Mexico is not our friend and we're building a wall? If it's good for me or bad for me, I don't think of that. I think of saying the right thing. And people have to be alerted to the fact sure. that we are getting some really bad characters coming into this country. He was also asked about his stunning comment yesterday that he wanted Oprah as his running mate. I do it kiddingly. All of a sudden they're saying, oh, Donald wants Oprah. Give me a break. According to a new poll in the crucial state of Iowa, almost 55 percent of voters think Trump's candidacy is a publicity stunt. Despite that, Trump started rising in the polls and cultivating crowds of thousands of people unpaid something none of the dozen or so other candidates in that field could do. And that got those unengaged voters to actually vote, and not just in the primary. Communications consultant Dave Wilson explains how. We were at a place and a point in time where America wanted somebody fired. We had dealt with, you know, from the Democratic side, eight years of the Obama campaign, and Trump was able to tap into this desire for people to have a change of something happen because we didn't like the hope and change that we got. I gave you the what hope and I was always was left with was the change in my pocket. You know, that was a joke that was going around. And and Trump had a couple of factors going in his favor. It did not hurt that he was already a known quantity. He was a known personality. He's this guy who's going to be the businessman who's going to come in and fix stuff because he does it on The Apprentice every single season. And so it, that kind of carried with it this level of, oh, well, that's the kind of person that we need. We need somebody who's going to go in and fire the people that need to be fired. But Donald Trump tapped into a whole different set of voters. 
That was the factor that helped Donald Trump to win. And Trey Walker, who has been involved in state Republican politics for decades and is currently Governor Henry McMaster's chief of staff, elaborated on those crowds back then and specifically who was in those crowds of people. It's not the number of people. It's who the people were. And the constant refrain, whether it was Mick Mulvaney, who I remember making this comment, or me or others, were like, who the heck are these people? I've been to party events. I've been to party conventions. I've been, I've been around the same folks all my professional life. You're going to see somebody you know. But when you walk into one of those Trump rallies, and but for the people you came with, you don't know a soul. Where did these people, who are they? That was the reaction I had. Mulvaney said the same thing, I think, at something in Rock Hill at Winthrop. I think he, Trump had an event up there, and he sort of had the same observation as, like, you know, I serve in Congress. I don't know who any of these people are. and They're my constituents. I think that's what Trump brought that was unique in 2016 was, it's like, where are these folks coming from? And I think it bore out in the primary results. I mean, that he got such a strong, and especially in South Carolina, such a strong high percentage of the vote in a multi-candidate field. So while there were six left standing come South Carolina's primary, 17 were in the race. There were debates, some with undercard candidates on them, candidates like senior U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham, who launched his long shot campaign earlier in June 2015 and who was an outspoken critic of Trump's at the time. No one here, including me, ever expected to hear me say, I'm Lindsey Graham and I'm running for president of the United States. I intend to be a president, not of a single party, but of a nation. I want to do more than make big government smaller. I want to help make a great nation greater. While Graham and others eventually got on Team Trump, it took a lot to get there. During that summer, Graham routinely took to the airwaves to denounce Trump, at times calling him a jackass for attacking his close friend, Senator John McCain, for being a prisoner of war, and this iconic moment on CNN. Well, I want to talk to the Trump supporters for a minute. I don't know who you are, and I don't know why you like this guy. I think what you like about him, he appears to be strong when the rest of us are weak. He's a very successful businessman, and he's going to make everything great. He's going to take all the problems of the world and put them in a box and make your life better. That's what he's selling. Here's what you're buying. He's a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. He doesn't represent my party. He doesn't represent the values that the men and women who wear the uniform are fighting for. I've been in the Air Force for 33 years. I retired this June. He's the ISIL man of the year, by the way. They did not get along. And in classic Trump fashion, he hit back hard against Graham, including giving out Graham's personal phone number at a rally in July 2015. You know, I'm saying to myself, what's this guy, beggar? He's like begging me to help him with Fox and Friends. So I say, okay, and I'll mention your name. He said, could you mention my name? I said, yes, I'll mention. And he gave me his number, and I found the card. I wrote the number down. I don't know if it's the right number. Let's try it. 202. 228-0292. And then, Gavin, Graham released a now-classic ad of him destroying his own cell phone as a result of being bombarded with calls from Trump supporters. 
Of course, that was going to happen. We'll circle back on the Graham-Trump dynamic that eventually turned into a partnership. But fast forward to December 2015, and Graham, amid zero traction in early voting states, announces he is dropping out of the race. In early January 2016, he throws his support behind establishment favorite Jeb Bush. I have concluded without any hesitation, without any doubt, that Jeb Bush is ready on day one to be a commander-in-chief worthy of the sacrifices of the 1% who have been fighting this war. Last night, he said, I will have their backs. I believe he will. Last night, he explained in the best possible terms why we need partners to win a war that we can't afford to lose. To those of you who worry about going it alone, you don't have to worry with Jeb. Jeb, exclamation point Bush, was set to be the darling of that cycle. Listen to Winthrop University political science professor Scott Huffman explain the environment. Jeb Bush was going to be the next president, not just the next nominee. I mean, that was almost fate complete, uh, you know, according to early polls and national polls. And again, that's a reason to say national is just sort of a popularity contest at the moment. What happens in those early states becomes critical. Um, And I think a lot of people had already anointed Jeb Bush and they just saw Trump as a little bit of a a fascinating sideshow and a a glimpse into something uh, uh, about partisanship that they hadn't noticed before. And, And like I said, Trump had the ability to connect to the rank and file, to fire them up in a way that uh, the, you know, the political pundit class did not expect at all. Bush and Trump routinely tangled on the debate stage. Here is a moment from the February 6th debate just three days before the New Hampshire primary between Trump and Bush over the use of eminent domain. What Donald Trump did was use eminent domain to try to take the property of an elderly woman on the strip in Atlantic City. That is not public purpose. That is downright wrong. And here's the problem with that. The problem was it was to tear Jeb, down. It was to Jeb tear wants down. To be, he wants to be a to tough guy. Down, he wants to be a tough guy tonight. It was to tear down I didn't the take house, the property. And the net I, result I didn't, was you tried. I didn't and take you the lost property. In the, court. the woman ultimately didn't want to do that. I that is not away, true. And, and the simple fact that I didn't. is to turn this into a limousine parking lot for his casinos is not a public use. And in Florida, based on what we did, we made that impossible. It is part of our constitution. That's the better approach. That is the conservative approach. Mr. Trump, take 30 seconds, Let let me just, you know, he wants to be a tough guy. A lot of times, you'll have, you'll have, and and it doesn't work very well with How tough is it to take property from an elderly woman? Let me talk, quiet. How tough is it? A lot of times, a lot of times, that's all of his donors and special interests out there. Trump won New Hampshire with 35% of the vote, followed by Ohio Governor John Kasich at 15% and Texas Senator Ted Cruz at 12%. While Graham's endorsement didn't move the needle for Bush, other South Carolina politicians were throwing their support behind other candidates, including then-Governor Nikki Haley and other prominent politicians who backed Florida Senator Marco Rubio. Here is Rob Godfrey, who was Haley's deputy chief of staff for communications at the time. He recalls the statewide bus tour Haley was on ahead of the February 20th primary. What we did see when we look back at the evidence is that Governor Haley's endorsement of Marco Rubio was crucial. It helped to pull his campaign um, across the second place threshold when Ted Cruz had been in a solid second place 
Uh, Rubio defeated Cruz for second place by a thousand votes. And, you know, that comes down to just a couple of extra stops that we made late in the late in the campaign, the night, but, you know, almost the night, I believe it was the night before in places like Pauley's Island um, and Georgetown County and along the coast where uh, those are starting to be uh, some of the some critical Republican strongholds. The chemistry among Senator Rubio, Governor Haley, and Senator Scott was was unbelievable. It was fun. It was a great campaign, and um, and Senator and Senator Rubio was a great candidate. And I still think he was the right candidate for Governor Haley to have endorsed. Um, and I still think he has a bright future ahead of him. And again, that's a huge coalition of big name Republicans that you would think would help propel Rubio to victory. And again, he was another victim of the Trump movement, a movement that then Lieutenant Governor Henry McMaster picked up on and decided to support becoming the first statewide elected official in the country to support Trump. Trey Walker recounts that endorsement. I wasn't surprised because I knew that that's where he had decided to go. But I did get a hell of a lot of phone calls that day in the run up uh, asking me to do whatever I could to get the, go- the lieutenant governor at the time not to go to that barbecue fundraiser in Lexington and endorse President Trump, which I did not do because I knew he had already made up his mind. His recollections, as, as have been shared with me, are always positive. I think that President Trump took a liking to the McMasters. And because he was so early on in that process, I think, and because of the way that he's comported himself with the president ever since, He's been very loyal. He's always been a a good friend. They've disagreed on policies like offshore drilling and things like that. Um, But the governor's always been a loyal friend, and governor is a loyal person, and the people that work for him are very loyal. And so I think that relationship has served the governor well. I know it served President Trump well. Yeah, you have the big dogs of South Carolina politics backing either Rubio or Bush or Cruz, and then McMaster breaks for Trump. Big risk that yielded a huge, huge, huge reward for McMaster. This move set up a domino effect that eventually propelled McMaster into the governor's mansion and elected to his first full term in 2018 amid a hot primary runoff. And then Haley got into a foreign policy rule. So two things that these shrewd politicians both needed and wanted on their resumes. Dave Wilson looks at this decision. I think he could see where things were going. I think Donald Trump did a lot of work that he needed to do to get the right people in place for what he needed. He took a business approach to this. One of his leading people for his campaign was Ed McMullen. Ed McMullen ends up being the ambassador to Switzerland. Nice gig, Ed. Okay, don't get me wrong. But, but Ed advised McMaster. Henry McMaster was extremely smart with what Henry McMaster had wanted to be able to do for decades, and that's to become governor of the state of South Carolina. Well, he could have been any position he wanted to in the entire administration. What did he ask for? I just, I love my state. I'd like to be the governor of my state. And all of a sudden, Nikki Haley ends up being the UN ambassador, leaves the governorship open, he moves up, and he's now governor for, will be the longest serving governor if he finishes this term in South Carolina history. Not bad for a guy who wanted the job for a long time. Did Henry McMaster's endorsement in that race? sway voters at the point that point in time maybe a little bit but the trump factor was already in play 
I think Henry recognized the Trump wave. It wasn't the Trump campaign who recognized the wave that Henry could create. Smart move on Henry McMaster's part because he knew and understood, I have this opportunity to ride this wave, and he has. I mean, you don't end up being the person who introduces the Republican nominee in 2016 as the lieutenant governor of South Carolina. If you haven't figured out, I'm going to be on this team and I'm going to play on that team. With just a few days before the primary, former President George W. Bush was enlisted to campaign for his brother in a state that delivered a decisive victory for him in the 2000 primary. Graham was also on stage, along with former First Lady Laura Bush in Charleston. Thank you for your hard work for Jeb. Thank you for what you're going to do, which is to vote for him on Saturday here in the great state of South Carolina. I'm really happy to be back in this uh, great state. I've got a lot of fond memories. I worked, I walked in the uh, okra strut in Irmo. I was pleased they didn't make me dress as an okra stalk. I fondly remember going to the 437th and the 315th air wings here in Charleston. Perhaps my most Interesting memory came in Greenville before the 2000 primary. Uh, David and uh, Susie and I and Laura went to Tommy's country's ham house. And we were eating breakfast. As a matter of fact, I was eating some bacon. When I looked out the window and a PETA protester dressed as a pig pulled up in a dump truck. He unloaded a huge load of manure in the parking lot to try to prevent me from leaving. It was kind of a sign of things to come. Nay, but none of it mattered because on February 20th, South Carolina, like New Hampshire, was a harbinger of things to come. CNN projects Donald Trump, the billionaire real estate magnate, will win the South Carolina Republican primary. This is a huge win for him coming off of New Hampshire where he won impressively He is the winner, according to our projection, based on actual numbers coming in, based on what's going on in the uh, the estimate of the exit polls. They're obviously thrilled over at Trump headquarters. Let's go over to Trump headquarters right now. Sarah Murray is standing by. You can see the excitement, Sarah, right behind you. Uh, We have a, a wonderful lieutenant governor who backed us very early in the process. You know Henry, right? Uh, The lieutenant governor of South Carolina, I will take him over the governor anytime because we won. We won. That night, Jeb Bush dropped out and Trump went on to gain more momentum and secure the Republican nomination and then the White House, defeating former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in November. Despite the momentum for Trump, Graham still maintained that he wouldn't be supporting him. But when Trump won, well, things changed a bit. Here's a CBS News report from March 2017. Many people wondered how President Trump and Republican Senator Lindsey Graham would handle themselves in their lunch meeting Tuesday. The two developed an adversarial relationship during the 2016 campaign when they were both running for president. Well, apparently the sit-down went well. 
Graham issued a statement after the lunch saying, quote, I had a great lunch meeting with President Trump today. He is strongly committed to rebuilding our military, which is music to my ears. President Trump is in deal-making mode, and I hope Congress is like-minded. He went on to quip, how good was the meeting? I gave him my new cell phone number. The rest is history, and Trump is once again looking to replicate that 2016 win this year, albeit in a much smaller field in following his loss in 2020. The ramifications of that 2016 race are still being studied and felt in down-ballot races across the state and country, and Trump's influence remains strong in the ruby-red state of South Carolina. Thanks for listening to the pod, y'all. You can show us your appreciation by leaving us a review or voicemail at 803-563-7169. And you can stay up to date with the latest news on SETV.org and SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. And don't forget to support your local newspapers. For the South Carolina lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina. Helped get him into the White House. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I had a break. No, it's okay. (laughs)